speak about God, what image do they often conjure up in their minds about who you're speaking about? One such image, and I stress just one image, would be the ever-popular image of a, of a wise old man with a long grey beard and his big white robes sat in heaven looking kindly down on earth and all that is going on. He, he's a benevolent old character. He, he loves as many people as will come to him. He's a bit of a Santa in the sky, if you like, ready to answer prayer, ready to give good gifts to people. And for those people who continue to believe in the reality of heaven and hell, they hope that when that day comes and, and the, the, the decision is laid before them, will he be in heaven or will he be in hell, they're hoping that this kindly old man in the sky, that perhaps they modelled on someone similar to their own grandfather, you know the sort of man who's ready to give a Werther's original to, to any old child who runs down the street, so long as he's not the really bad one, they're hoping that this same God will treat them uh, in the same way. That so long as they've not been really bad, this God will give them the gifts that they hope for. And some people go on in life and uh, will continue to use this image of God to remind people, do not judge me. God is my judge. Hoping that in, in diverting the judgment of other humans away from themselves, they can rest on the judgment of this God, who really won't judge all that sternly at all. Now, as Christians, we like to think that we've got a, a much fuller, much more accurate, much better picture of who God is than this fairly naive caricature that is so often portrayed. And I hope we do have a better picture of God than that caricature. However, sometimes, although we might be able to talk about God in a certain way, in a more accurate way, in a more biblical way, our actions betray the fact that we've been influenced by those other caricatures. So, for example, in your personal prayers, have you ever come across a situation where you're just not sure what it is that you're supposed to pray for? If your health is good, you've got a good job, there's money in the bank, there's a roof on your head, there's a car on your drive, there's, there's food in the fridge, so just what do I pray to this God for? Do you see what's happened there? We've allowed ourselves to think about God just as this Santa in the sky, who's just there to give us gifts. And if I don't particularly need any gifts from him, then how do I relate to him? Another uh, way this is shown is sometimes when we assess our time of worship together. We come home from Sunday of an evening and we think, how is the worship today at church? And our assessment of the time of worship is so often more about how we feel and how we engage with it and how it shaped us than it is about how much glory it gave to God. How can the act of worship be about us rather than about God? Do you see what's happened? Our caricature of God has made him low in our thinking and it's exalted ourselves. Even though we might not talk about him in that way, the way we do other things, our actions betray that we've been influenced in that way. So you can see, an incorrect view of who God is has a direct impact on the way that we serve him. And other caricatures have similar effect. So if, for example, you see God as the big, angry judge, you can imagine how that would make you into a very legalistic person, always trying to keep certain rules. 
or if you're influenced by the atheistic or naturalistic worldviews, that can lead you to be a very materialistic person. Because God, although you accept he exists, are tempted to think that he's very distant. He's far off. He's not at all involved in who you are and what you do. A wrong view of God affects the way we serve him. Now, Isaiah was preaching into a situation that was very characteristic of this kind of misunderstanding or low opinion of God. In Jerusalem or in Judah, the religious leaders there have drifted from following God wholeheartedly. So in chapter 5, Isaiah describes them with such unusual phrases as, look, you, you guys who are supposed to be the religious leaders, what you've become is... Well, you're champions at mixing drinks. You're athletes at chasing after wine. It shows a shift in their priorities. You women in Judah, your priority seems to be flirting and jewellery and beauty and fragrances and incense. This is what you've set your hearts on instead of serving God. In chapter 5, Isaiah rebukes these religious leaders because they add house to house until there is no space left. What's wrong with that, you might think? Man's got to earn a living, right? Might as well be a landlord, if anything else. But what Isaiah says they're doing is, you're pushing out the poorer people of the city by taking all the best parts of the city for yourself. Isaiah says in chapter 3, you are crushing God's people. You are grinding the faces of the poor. These are the religious leaders, the shepherds of God's people. Now, these religious leaders, they've not forgotten God. They've not totally ignored him. They're not fully committed to serving idols or false gods. So they say, for example, they respond to Isaiah, let God see it. Uh, Let God hurry so we may see it. Chapter 5, verse 19. What they mean is, hey, Isaiah, you're preaching against us here. But if God is really so displeased with us, Why doesn't he show it? Let him hurry. Let him show us his displeasure with us. No, Isaiah, the way we know if God is pleased with us or not is whether he blesses us or not. Well, look at all this wealth we've got, Isaiah. Look at everything that's going so well for us. How could God possibly be displeased with us? Similarly, in the first chapter, Isaiah says these religious leaders, they are bringing multitudes of sacrifices to the temple. They're they're, um, sticklers for keeping the religious festivals, the new moons and the Sabbaths and the feasts. But Isaiah continues to call them leaders of Sodom. He says, your sacrifices are useless because although you bring these many sacrifices, your lives continue in unrepentant wickedness. You bring the sacrifice, but you're not doing anything about your sin. You're acting as though God can be bought off with some ritual offering. And so it's against this backdrop of outward religious show in Judah that Isaiah receives the vision described in chapter 6. Let's look at that vision now. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now Uzziah is an interesting name to start with because he could be shown to be Well, his life follows a similar pattern to that of the Israelites or Judah. 
You see, Uzziah in uh, 2 Chronicles is described as a man who did what was right in the Lord's eyes. And because he was a good king, obeying God in that way, God gave him much blessing. He expanded his army. He took back a lot of uh, control of, of land for Judah. But in the end, Uzziah died of leprosy. Because what happened was, as Uzziah was faithful to God, God blessed him. But Isaiah, Uzziah then became proud. And in his pride, he, he got an inflated view of himself and a low view of God. And one day, Uzziah decided he was going to make his own offering to God. And he went into the temple and he began to burn incense. Now the priest came in and said, Uzziah, you're doing it wrong. God has given his instructions about how to do this. You shouldn't be doing this. Uzziah became angry. And there in the temple, amongst this argument that's broken out between Uzziah and the priests, Uzziah contracts leprosy. Which means effectively that Uzziah can't come into any contact with people anymore. And so he's put into, into exile, basically. Into solitary confinement. And his son has to uh, lead as king for the last ten years of his life. The pattern of Uzziah's life is he started obedient, he became powerful, he got wealthy, he became proud. He got a low view of God, he got a high view of self, he disobeyed, he suffered judgment. Now Judah seemed to have followed the same pattern. They've started off obedient, they've been blessed by God, they've now become proud. They've disobeyed. And they're about to suffer judgment. Verse 1 again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. There are many rulers, many authorities, many kings even, that Isaiah would have to stand up against. Many lords and masters who would be ready and willing to throw their authority around. But Isaiah, in his vision, sees the Lord. The Lord. The one who is truly sovereign. The one who is over all of those other powers that Isaiah would end up confronting. And this Lord that Isaiah sees has all power. He doesn't just have the most power. Don't imagine here lining up. Okay, here's the, uh, here's the, the local leader. Here's the, the high priest. Here's the king. We've got this spectrum of, of power. And as you move along, you've got the most power. And oh, well, we just put God a little bit further on the spectrum. No, God has not just got most power. God is not just the biggest bully in the playground. God has all power. All of that power that even those religious leaders, even those power that the king assumes that he has for himself, God has in his own hands. God is in full control of every situation. And he's about to show that by able, being able to fulfill his own plans that depend upon the inmost thoughts, the internal reactions of those people even who are most opposed to him. God has power even to harden men's own hearts in order to achieve his own purposes. God doesn't just have most power, he has all power. And Isaiah sees this Lord, the Lord, seated on his throne, high and exalted. God sits on his throne as both king and judge. 
just as Uzziah had already been judged for his disobedience. Judah are now about to be judged for theirs. And this judge that Isaiah sees is no petty, small claims judge. He's high and exalted. He sits far above Isaiah, looking down. And even the train of his robe, his kingly robe, fills the temple in which Isaiah stands. This is a scene of great majesty. This is a scene of great glory. This is a scene that should instill fear into Isaiah. And this king who sits on his throne is attended by seraphs, verse 2. Seraphs literally are the burning ones. They're fiery, angelic beings standing above that throne. Perhaps there's just two of them, one either side, or perhaps, and probably more likely, there were, there were more than two, perhaps there were thousands of them. As they call out, their voices are able to shake the doorposts and the thresholds of the temple. You've got this vision of a, of a, a king with all power, sat on his throne, high and lifted up, mighty above all, attended by thousands upon thousands of fiery, angelic beings ready to do his will. And even these seraphs, even these holy, heavenly beings can't bear to look at this king. They cover their faces with two of their wings as a sign of, well, as a sign of reverence and as a sign of awe, but also perhaps protection from seeing with their own eyes the glory of this king on his throne. With two wings they cover their feet as a sign of humility and unworthiness. And with two wings they fly, ready to do the will of this king who sits on his throne. Ready to be obedient in whatever he asks or says. And continuously, this choir of of holy, fiery beings cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. This king is holy. What does it mean to be holy? One thing that being holy means is to be separate or set apart or different. And so the question is, well, what is God set apart from? What is God different from? And the answer is, he's set apart, he's different from literally everything else that exists. God is different from everything else in existence. God alone is the creator. Everything else that exists has been created by God. Whether it's this earth, whether it's you, whether it's your thoughts, whether it's those heavenly angelic beings, whether it's the demons, whether it's the powers of nature, everything else is created. God alone is the creator. God alone is self-dependent. God alone can act according to his own will. God alone has ultimate autonomy. God alone can do exactly what he wants, what he chooses. God alone can make his own decisions. Only he can do exactly what he wants to do because he alone is self-dependent. And therefore, to be holy also means 
Well, it includes a moral element. It means that God always is doing what is in accordance with who he is. It means that God, as the only self-dependent being, as the only one who hasn't been created by something else, as the only one who isn't influenced by an outside source, he always does what he determines is good. And that is what is good. He always does, he always acts to uphold and protect his goodness and purity. And for this reason, his holiness means that God, this king, stands in complete opposition to sin. He stands in complete opposition to all those that would reject him or turn from him. This vision that Isaiah has is a vision of a king who is pure and righteous, who is powerful and who will in no way clear the guilty, who will in no way look over sin because sin is at root a rejection of him and his authority. Now think about how this vision that Isaiah has contrasts to the vision of God that Judah had conjured up for themselves. Think about their efforts to try and coerce this God and force this God to do as they want him to do. Perhaps by offering him sacrifices. Perhaps by observing his religious festivals. They think that in that way they can get this God to do what they want. The vision of God that Isaiah sees is this is God with all power, who alone chooses how he acts, and is not influenced by outsiders. Think about how those in Judah abuse their authority as God's representatives. How they act as God's leaders, God's shepherds, and yet use that authority to draw in wealth for themselves and to oppress the poor. Contrast that then to the way God's representatives, those fiery angelic seraphs, won't even look at God. Hide their feet in humility, ready to be perfectly obedient to all that God asks. Think about how Judah are willing to tolerate false gods and idols in the temple of the one true God. Think about how they're willing to, to pit this God on, this king on his throne alongside the false gods that they fashion with their hands, that they make out of pieces of wood and of gold, that they have to feed, that they have to pick up and move. Think about how their gods contrast to this God that Isaiah is shown a vision of. And then think about how Isaiah's vision of God contrasts with the image that we so often conjure up for ourselves. That old man with the beard, kindly and benevolent, but not really knowing all things, not really seeing all things, not really quick enough to pick up on the nuances of some of our decisions and our actions. The way we think of God sometimes as the Santa in the sky, giving us things as though he owes us things. Thinking of God as the one who winks at evil, as though he would prefer, as though he needs us with him, as though he needs someone to love. And so he would much rather forgive us than condemn us, because he's some sort of needy God who needs people to worship him. That's not the vision of God that Isaiah sees. Think about how we think about worship. 
how so often we make our worship of God about us and our feelings and our response. As though, in Isaiah's vision, the seraphs could be there for their own pleasure, doing their own thing. In the words of the children's song, have we made our God too small? We need to recover a right view of who God is. What's Isaiah's response upon seeing this, the, the true vision of this awesome and terrible God? Verse 5 is, uh, records Isaiah's response. He says, Woe to me, I am ruined. Literally, it means I am dead. I am a goner. I may as well not be here. I am flattened. I am done for. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. How could Isaiah's response be anything other? Having seen this king on his throne for who he really is, having seen him in all his glory and all his majesty and all of his holiness, how could Isaiah say anything other than, woe is me, I am ruined. If God really is that holy, holy, holy God, committed to all that is good and pure and right. How can Isaiah even stand in his presence? He can't. Isaiah assumes the inevitable, says, I'm ruined. He sees just how deep his sin runs. And again, this stands in contrast to the, to the attitude of the religious leaders in Judah. On the one hand, you see, those religious leaders did recognise sin. They made those many sacrifices, which of course all had to do with sin. And yet their lives were unrepentant. They knew the difference between good and evil. They were still concerned about sticking to certain laws. And yet they twisted what God had said was right and wrong. And in the end they were calling good evil. And they were calling evil things good. In Judah there's this appearance of righteousness. But it's like silver that's been covered in dross and tarnish. Or it's like choice wine that's been heavily diluted with water. They've got a sense of sin, but it just doesn't go far enough. It stays at the surface level. It gets brushed off all too easily. Isaiah, on the other hand, says, I am a man, a person, a creature, a son of Adam, I'm a man of unclean lips. Even my best that I have to offer. He was a preacher. He was a prophet of God. His redeeming feature were his words that he'd spoken on God's behalf. And Isaiah says, even my best is tainted by sin. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Do you see the contrast here between Judah's view of sin and Isaiah's view of sin. Judah accounting sin as perhaps specific actions dealt with by rituals or, or offering certain sacrifices. They see it as just a balance to be kept in check. You sin here, you sacrifice there. Isaiah sees it as a heart issue. It runs through all that he is and all that he does. And there's nothing that he can do to wipe it out. The Jews count their sin perhaps as a, as a mechanism They see it as as being against an impersonal law. These are the list of rules that you've got to keep. And when you break that, oh, that's what sin is. Isaiah, in his vision of the king, sees that his sin 
is not against an impersonal law, but his sin is against a holy and eternal God. Judah seemed to accept sin as a way of life. Perhaps they even indulge it at times. Isaiah sees his sin as a sentence of death when he stands before the judge and the king. Do you see the contrast between your view of sin and Isaiah's view of sin? Only when we've got these first two points in sharp focus can we see any hope in verse 6 and 7. God's majestic holiness, his greatness, his goodness, his power and his awesomeness sat on his throne, this King of kings, this Lord of lords and our woeful sinfulness that runs to the very core of our being. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Here is mercy and grace, hand in hand, in bucket loads. Absolute bucket loads. This God of all holiness, this God of all goodness and purity, did not annihilate, or punish, or ruin, or judge Isaiah as he came into his presence. That is great mercy. Because that is the only thing that Isaiah deserved. Mercy is when God does not treat us in the way that we deserve. But then, this same holy God who always acts in opposition to sin, this same holy God who always acts to protect his goodness and preserve his deity and his righteousness, this God made atonement for Isaiah's sin. He took his guilt away. Forgiveness is offered. Isaiah is washed clean. Again, see the contrast. Judah come with many, many sacrifices. And God says, get out of my temple. Get out. Isaiah comes with nothing in his hands. And God says, come near. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Isaiah is brought near. He's allowed to stand. He's washed and made clean. You know, each and every one of us will stand before that very same king on his throne. Each of us will appear before him. On that day, how will you plead? What will you say? What will you offer? What will you present to this king of kings and lord of lords who needs nothing from your small and feeble hands? What will you plead before this king who is looking to uphold his righteousness? and looking to squash and judge and punish all sin and all rebellion, what will you offer? If you're an unbeliever, you've got to realise that you have nothing to offer. You've got nothing. Realise that you, just like Isaiah thought he was, will be ruined. We're all men of unclean lips. We all live amongst people of unclean lips. And one day we will see the king. But to the believer, 
God's word to you is, see, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And you're in a position which is even more privileged than the position that Isaiah stands in. How could this holy God, who is always just, who is always fair, who is always stands against sin, who is always holy, how could he ever act to forgive a sinner? Isaiah would never know. Isaiah knows it's been done. Isaiah knows it's been done because he has received that forgiveness. But how? How could God act in that way? Isaiah doesn't know. He's got snippets of information. He knows it's going to be something to do with a servant of God. He knows it's going to be something to do with this servant suffering. He knows that this suffering servant is going to renew the people of God. And that this new, renewed people of God will not just include Jews and Israelites, it will include people from all over the world. Isaiah's got snippets of information, but he doesn't know the details. But you are not peering forward through the mists of hazy prophecy. You are looking back at the facts of history. You are looking back to the man, Jesus Christ, who came, who lived the righteous life, who lived in perfect obedience, who died as your sacrifice of atonement, who bore your sins in his body on the tree. You know how God is going to forgive you. You know how your guilt has been taken away, how your sin has been atoned for. And you know that it was done by this same majestic God, this same king on his throne, this same almighty majesty, stepping down into creation, becoming like us, to take on the punishment that we deserve. He was pierced for our iniquities. He became the sacrifice of atonement. What was Isaiah's response when he realized what he'd received? He barely has time to utter relief or thankfulness or praise or or anything else. All he could do is say, here am I, send me. How could he do any other? How could he offer anything else to this God? Do you know, Isaiah would suffer many things during his ministry. He'd suffer rejection. He'd suffer persecution. He'd suffer ridicule, political pressure. He'd be ignored. In fact, he was sent in order that people would ignore him. And it was this vision that was going to spur him on. As he faces that rejection, as he faces that pressure from the the people he's trying to preach to, every day he'd be tempted. Who is it I'm serving? Is it King Uzziah? Is it King Jotham? Ahaz, Hezekiah? Is it the religious leaders? Is it the poor in the city? Who am I here for? He's here for this king on his throne. He's here for the Lord, and that's who he's serving. And the only right response to the mercy and grace that has been poured out upon him is to say, here am I, send me. I will do your will wholeheartedly. And to the Christian, you too will be ridiculed, ignored, pressured. You too will live differently. You too will have to lose your life for the sake of Christ physically or metaphorically. But what cost is too great 
What is too much to give to the one who has taken your guilt away? What service is too much for the one who died as your sacrifice of atonement? And how much more glorious and hopeful is the vision that you have to spur you on in this work than that vision that even Isaiah had? I'm going to end with some words from Hebrews chapter 12 which pick up on a similar theme as this but focus on the idea of the the law being received. It says, You've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire. You've not come to darkness, gloom and storm. You've not come to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Isaiah's vision of this king was so terrifying that Isaiah said, woe to me, I am ruined. You've not come to this sort of vision. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You have come to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Your vision of this king is not of the fearful, terrible king on his throne. Your vision of this king is Christ on the cross, dying in your place. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire.